Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Today I'm chatting with a multi-talented author whom many listeners will know from TV, particularly his role on Spicks and Specs, comedian presenter Alan Bro. Welcome to 3CR's Published or Not, Alan. Hi, Ewan. How are you? Very well, and congratulations on your new book for young readers. It's called Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches. Yes. And it's the second book in what looks to be a best-selling series. I'm glad you think it looks to be a best-selling series. This is the second, and there'll be a third sometime next year. Title to be confirmed, uh, but it will feature Charlie and Hills, the two main characters from the first book, which is Charlie and the War Against the Grannies. Well, the second one. Let's just start with that Charlie and the War Against the Grannies. I had a look at that and I thought, oh, I wonder if uh, you copped any flack about that War Against the Grannies. Not really. Grannies seem okay about it. I've been going, <laughs> I've, I've, because I'm a performer as well, I go around quite a lot and do performances about the book. So I, I'm a musician, so I've written songs to do with the book. So we go, I go around and do things. And you invariably encounter a lot of grannies because if you're out during the school holidays, <laughs> So many grandparents are taking their kids, their young grandchildren, to events. So I I did a round in regional Victoria this school holiday's just been, and only one uh, a a woman came up to me. Because in the first line of the first book is, I didn't want Mrs Cyclopolis to explode, I just wanted a paper round. And Mrs Cyclopolis, you discover, is an evil granny. And I sing a song in the show called That Is How You Blow Up a Granny, which is all these ways of blowing up a granny. <laughs> TNT microwave, uh, baking soda and vinegar and things like that. <laughs> and um, a woman came up to me, and I say at the beginning of the song, do not do any of these. Tr- don't try any of these with your granny. And I, a woman came up to me, um, her, her, clearly a grandmother, but she said to me, she said, I am a grandmother. Because grandmothers do like to identify themselves if they don't think they're identifiable as grandmothers, <laughs> i.e. age-wise. She said, I am a grandmother. And she said, I'm very disturbed, Alan, that you are encouraging young people to blow us up. <laughs> and I really? said, well, I hope no one is taking it seriously. She said, well, I for one am, Alan. <laughs> and then we, so, <laughs> then I signed some books for her and she took off. So I didn't think she was taking it too personally. Okay, so you have actually ruffled a few feathers. Yeah, yeah, I, I, only a few. <laughs> this was in be- So I've ruffled a few feathers yeah. in Bendigo. Go that what that instance oh, okay. was. Yeah. Right. Well, that can be a flashpoint. It's true. <laughs> now, look, I've got to ask you: uh, your writing influences do they include Doctor Zeus and perhaps Monty Python? Um, yes, many things I do are influenced by Monty Python because I saw them at just the right time. I was thirteen when the film The Meaning of Life came out, right? And I went to the yeah. cinema to watch it. And those things, if you are open to them, yeah. by predilection or by just by situation they are hugely influential sure my writing influences it's really weird um samuel beckett oh i didn't pick that well no no, no that's no. I, I i don't i don't think it's pickable but no. the back and forth one of the things i love to do is write dialogue and charlie who is the main character and hills who's his best friend yeah. charlie's a bit of an overthinker hills is much more direct yeah. i love writing the dialogue between them and well, th- now when you say direct, can I pull you up on that? Hills does speak in army speak. Oh yeah, so yeah. direct, but it is coded as well. It is, <laughs> yes. Um, she wanted she wants to join the army, yeah. so she speaks as if she's 
she acts as if she's already in the army. So she yeah. says affirmative instead of yes, negative instead of no, and all, all sorts of things like that. And, and she says maintain radio silence when she wants Charlie to shut up. Um, I love writing the dialogue between them, and it, any dialogue I write is influenced from many, many years ago from when I first read um, Waiting for Godot, oh, the back and yeah. forth okay. between yeah. Vladimir and mm. Estragon. Right. Um, and has been a huge influence. Um, Dr. Seuss, I mean, a lot of... I've had a lot of influences. I have a six-year-old daughter, so uh, we've read a lot of Dr. Seuss, and I, the way he can build a world is, I think, unparalleled. And he uses repetitions so well. It's mm. musical, and you've got that in part of your books. It's really nice repetition that builds. And, uh, yes, it's about singing cockroaches, but it's mm. actually the way you put the prose down uh, works so well. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad about that. And I, I, I must admit that one of the things I've, I've been very happy with about the books is that people have told me, parents have told me that it's really enjoyable to read them out loud. Yeah. And I'm very happy about that because I really, I have a huge respect for books and I have a huge respect for reading and the act of reading with other people is just wonderful, I think. And I I spend a lot of time reading with my daughter. And so to have written something that people enjoy reading with their children is really an added bonus that I didn't consider when I was writing the book. Now, verbally, that's one thing, reading with uh, a child or even by yourself. But you've designed this book in a particularly special way. It's not just straight lines of text and sentences. There are signs. There are almost booby traps and a lot of onomatopoeia, if I could use that term, with some of the args drawn out. Uh, When the exterminator, the dreaded exterminator, speaks, he's in big distressed block letters in the middle of the page. Um, You must have had a bit of fun designing that, and I think there'd be uh, a reason why you did that design rather than just straight text, is there? Yeah, there is. So my part of that design um, is the text boxes and the breakout bits that in it was had very practical application which was it a way to get more jokes in without <laughs> interrupting the story so you could read past the text box so there's there might be a text box might break out from the text and explain or expand on something yep. but you can go past that if you're only interested in the story then go back to it i can't take any credit for the artistic interpretation of the book as in the typography and things yep. evie who designed the cover of has designed the cover and has done the typesetting for both yeah. my books. My editor, Claire Craig at Pan Macmillan, during the first the process of the first book, Evie did the cover and I just went, oh, that's great. Yeah. And Claire said to me, I think this book requires an artist to typeset it. Yeah. And I think it, it benefits yeah. hugely from that, as you have pointed out. So do I. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it, um, it really, because there's no illustrations, mm. it brings everything to life. And she's got yeah. a, Evie has got a wonderful sensibility, and I'm very. Um, it's very exciting to get the first pages. So when it's first typeset, and I get them in document, and I look at them on the computer to see how it changes from the way that I wrote it to the way that she's typeset. And interestingly, for the second book, there were some gags, yeah. which I thought these are going to be funnier because I know that she will do something interesting with them. Yeah, right. And and that collaboration that yeah. we're um, I mean, I don't think we've ever spoken to each other, actually. I think we've only exchanged oh, emails. Okay. But that knowing that she was re- so, she's so good yeah. um, has 
brought to life some things that would not have been as funny or as interesting in the book. Look, it works so well. It helps break up the story for the reader too. I counted 78 chapters and 228 pages yeah. or, or thereabout. And so uh, kids are there reading. They can just sort of do a grab if they're on the bus or something like that or yeah. waiting so they can read on as much as they want. And there are these constant surprises. Having talked about the repetition, you nicely build in a Dr. Zeus type way. The variations, some of the lateral ideas like the antelopes shooting swords, is that right? Yes, yeah, um, antelopes guarding a house. Um, Yes, Charlie goes to visit a friend of his and she doesn't live there, mysteriously doesn't live there anymore. And there's a series of signs. I love signs and things like that. And I love the idea that, yeah, this house is plastered with these signs about how no one lives there anymore and it's guarded by antelopes. And then there is a long conversation with the signs that's meant to be read by the person, obviously, about, yes, antelopes can, you know, they're, they're antelopes with swords. Yes, they can hold swords. Their hooves have been, the swords have been modified to fit in their hooves. Yeah. And it, I like, I love the idea of a conversation that happens in signs. Um, and you don't know who has put it there or for what reason yeah. they've put it there. Oh, this fantastic mystery that goes all the way through, and I'm not going to tap into that as I'll leave it for the reader to explore, but I am going to give one example or another example of some of your wonderful lateral ideas. Uh, could you explain to our listeners the party pie pack of pain? <laughs> yes. Um, so there is a battle uh, near the end of the book, and... Uh, Hills arms herself and Charlie with four weapons, and one of them is the party pie pack of pain. <laughs> so the party pie pack of pain is a is basically a small is a pack of party pies frozen solid frozen yep. solid that have had the edges of the top sharpened. Now anyone who's ever dropped like a, a frozen pie or something on their toe or <laughs> dumped something frozen, you, they're really heavy. And so these are the top of these party pies are, f- are sharpened um, to a real point. They pop. You have it on your back, on your the top of your backpack. They pop up out of the frozen container and then into a little catapult that fires them <laughs> ahead of you at an enemy. These are just wonderful. There are a number of devices you've got in there like that that I, I won't spoil it for the reader, but they are just so lateral and so clever. I've also got to ask you um, about the use of scatological humour, like yeah. fart, poo, bum jokes. In kids' books and kids' entertainment in general, how important are they? Well, I don't know how important they are to kids. They're very important to me. <laughs> they still make – all that stuff still makes me laugh. Yep. And I try uh, – yeah, I – I can. I wrote the first book, not knowing whether I could be funny for kids. Yeah. But my uh, Claire, my editor, said to me, "Everyone's ten-year-old is still in there. It's just how easily you can access it." I agree. And I started writing in the first person, um, so Charlie narrates both the the books, and I found it relatively quickly. Yeah. So farting yeah. and bums and poo and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, still make me laugh a great deal, particularly farting. Yeah. And so they're they're important to me. They make me laugh. Now I know they make kids laugh. Yeah. But I think one of the great things also is is it's it's about how you get there. Very true. And I have tried to keep my powder dry on certain occasions and then not on others. There's in the first book. There's a whole section of where Charlie and Hills are in a um, a wardrobe. 
and they're trapped in this wardrobe by two evil grannies. And Charlie wonders, has always wondered what it would be like when he felt like, what would happen to him when he felt his life was in danger. And he says, I wondered if I would um, develop superhuman strength. Yeah. And then it happens, he goes, I didn't develop su- superhuman strength. I didn't even develop s- human strength. I farted. <laughs> and he's in this, and it's all about describing the smell of the farts, like taking opening your lunchbox after it's been in your warm school bag for a thousand years. Um, so they're very important to me, and they have proved important to to the readers as well. Oh, well they're terrific. Uh, it is such a funny book. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Alan Bro's new book out in the stores now is Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches, and it is published by Pan Macmillan. Today, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much, Alan Bro. Thank you. And that was Ewan's interview, and now for mine. The Shloshim is the 30 days of mourning in Jewish tradition after the death of a loved one. Mark Baker's book, 30 Days, utilises this notion as he recounts the passing of his wife, who was only 55 years of age. So, Mark, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, this is more than a memoir. The writing of it must have had its challenges. So the title of the book, 30 Days, and you refer to the ritual of the Shloshim, Mm. is the period in which a spouse mourns for their partner. And so my wife, Karen, was diagnosed with cancer. At first, she just felt some pain in her back. She was perfectly healthy, as far as we knew. And within two days, she was given a diagnosis, and we knew that the end was inevitable, that she had a terminal illness. She only survived on chemotherapy for 10 months. So it was a very condensed and short period. And when she died, I was thinking, will I write a eulogy? And I was paralyzed. I didn't know what words to use to describe her. I was emotionally overwrought. And in the end, I managed to write a eulogy a few days before she died. I read it to her in the hospice and she smiled at parts. And at the end, she said, it's too long. And so I cut the eulogy. And after she died, I spent the next 30 days writing in a frenzy. I've never written in that sort of way. It was as if I had this compulsion to write our entire life and just put it on paper because one of the things you experience when you lose a partner with whom you've shared your entire adult life, we were married when she was 22, I was 23. We were both students at Melbourne University at the time. And there was this feeling that, my our life, our entire life, our shared life was going in the grave together with her. That's part of the grief. And so I just wrote like a machine. I felt that she was dictating the book to me from the grave. And even though I didn't believe that, it was a conceit that carried me through the 30 days. And I ended up producing something like 90,000 words. And on the day of the Shloshim, on the 30 days, I went to the cemetery. It was before an actual stone is laid that consecrates the grave. So it was just bare earth. And I did something that was crazy, which points to my state of mind at the time, something that grief does to you. I actually burnt the manuscript in a pot in which she would cook her chicken soup for Passover And I took the ash and I sprinkled the ash over her grave. And it was a crazy thing to do. I was conscious of it, actually. When I was driving to the cemetery, it was smoking in the front front seat. I thought the whole car would be set on fire. And there was a sense in which I, I wanted her to read the book and to ask her, did I write the truth? Did I... Did, did, did I capture our, our lives through, through these words? And 
there was something magical about what I wanted to do. I had the image of the legend of the golem, the creation from it's a story from the Middle Ages in Jewish tradition, which has led to stories such as the Frankenstein myth. And it's not that I ever thought of my wife as a in, in that kind of way, but there was this human compulsion to try to restore her and to bring her from dust back to life. And the only way I could do that was through words. And so on the one hand, I I played with this magic that words can create, but I rationally didn't believe that that was possible. Now, this raises all sorts of questions. I mean, the fact that she was diagnosed at 55 years of age and there is our biological inevitability and if you want to raise um, the biblical notion of three score and ten we now exceed that and just to point out some of your background um, you're the director of the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization, an associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Monash so a lot of your Jewish tradition comes into this as well but we are bound biologically and in many ways it comes as a surprise because what, how we perceive our lives today and the length and duration is not often compatible with the bi- our, our own biology, which says at 55, that's it. So it comes as quite a shock. Yeah. Well, the, well the, the Jewish greeting when one meets a mourner is that one should live not three score and ten, that, that isn't satisfactory, but the length of the days of Moses. And he lived a hundred and... 20 years and the end of the biblical story he actually doesn't reach his destination he has to sit on the side of the Jordan River and that he dreamed about getting across and I think that says something about life that no matter what point you get to if we had 120 years or we lived the days of you know the longest living person in the biblical narrative which is 769 years I think it is you know we still would be on the wrong side of the river and it's you know the rivers of Babylon in which we weep and I think that no matter when we die, there is always going to be loss. There is always going to be mourning. I, I've written another book, The 50th Gate, about my parents' experiences as Holocaust survivors. And they're alive today. And I know that one day that I will be mourning them. And even though they're at the age where they will die a natural death of old age, there will still be a mourning process. But when you're taken away at 55, it's it's a very different experience and one one has a very clear sense that one hasn't lived the full life and so the question is how does one confront it's a question Karen asked it's a question I ask in the book what does it mean to live and to confront your own death and to live your own dying but this is interesting um, to confront one's own death because biologically there was a termination date uh, in many ways and is it and I don't want to be insensitive, is it a modern-day conceit in many ways that because of modern medicine we've been able, and modern lifestyle, we've been able to live longer? And therefore, um, how you know the, our lifespan or the way we look at it is that we should, we are entitled. Um, but as you're saying, biblically... Um, there are exceptions as well. Yeah, well, the, you know, the biblical stories are, are stories, but, you know, what what is a normal lifespan? And I know that for, for Karen, you know, if we talked about bucket lists for her, it was um, being able to live to see, um, to share grandchildren. And part of the story describes our oldest son 
getting married and, well, getting engaged first and having a celebration in which Karen gave heroic speech. You know, she was the only one in the family that was willing to speak. The rest of us would have been reduced to numbness and, and, and tears, and we had the tears by listening to her, but she spoke and really gave a farewell speech. And at the end of it, we were so inspired that my son and his um, fiancé wanted to get married, and so Karen did what she did. She was a doctor by training, but she wanted to see them get married and try to organise it, and she allowed us to do everything except one thing, and that was send out invitations. And she died a month before the wedding, and they got married six months later in, in Byron Bay, and on the wedding canopy they actually had the the veil that she wore at my wedding you know, 30-plus years earlier that was floating in the wind and touching their head. And so on the one hand, her, her presence was was there and, you know, we, neither Karen or myself believe physically in an afterlife. But I, I believe that the afterlife, and I think she shared this belief because we talked about everything, the afterlife was, her afterlife was and is overpowering. It's something that only the living carry. And as she died... She she apologised to us because she knew that once the living work of dying was over, that it was the living that would carry her memory. It was the living that would carry the suffering, and that we would we would we would be living with the legacy of her afterlife, which is overpowering and informs the writing of this book that was done in thirty days. Now, the other interesting thing is uh, the the notion um, of these traditions and rituals that are part of, well, the, the Shloshim is, is just one of those traditions. and But some of these traditions um, that we see here are part of the Jewish religion and tradition, but some of them um, are almost superstitions. You have a scene where there are blades of grass tossed over the shoulder as a sort of practice you have people offering um bread at one stage there was the um oh if i can find mm. the the reference um and i've well pe- people offered to bake these ritualistic breads known as friday nights what's many jewish people eat on friday night challah because it's supposed to have healing powers and so there are all of these offers to do magic that would somehow heal her and prayers and Karen, you know, Karen and I appreciated and do the the gesture that came from the heart. But I, I don't think that, even though we lived in many ways religious lives, you know, I've always described myself as a religious atheist. Um, I'm involved and established to and in partnership with with Karen and others, a an Orthodox egalitarian synagogue. And so while I, I believe in the rituals, I believe in living by many of the narratives and the, and the rituals, um, I don't believe literally that a, a prayer is going to maintain a person's life because then one is left with the question of, of what is the meaning of prayer when people die? Were our prayers inadequate? Uh, I think that Karen died in a tragic way because life, from the minute we're born, carries with it a certain randomness, and we all live by a thread. And I think that what grief, the grief that I experienced and that my family has experienced, confronted us with what we often suppress in our lives. We all know we're going to die. 
We all hope that we're going to die well. We all hope that we're going to die at an old age. Um, and old is a relative term. But I think in today's world, when one dies at 55, you know, in many ways, Karen was at her at her peak. She was very healthy. And to to confront that forces you... The real question is, you know, is what does my life mean? And there's there's a rabbinic saying that says, that, you know, that asks the question, where do we come from? And in a very realistic, confronting way, it says we come from a drop of putrid water. And then it says, where are we going to? We're going to a place of dust and earth. But then the punchline is, know before whom you have to stand. And I think that the reckoning that one has to give, that Karen felt she had to give, that I contemplate in the book... Is, is a reckoning that is a personal self-reflection. It, it's, it might be for some people a reckoning before a belief in a God. I think for Karen it was looking at herself, at her family, at us, and saying, what was this, did, did I live a fulfilling life? And, you know, and it's a question that I felt compelled to ask looking at her life. And I'm trained as an historian, and for me, you know, within my grief, I wouldn't be able to write this book now because it was written in that moment of rawness, um, in, in that month of absolute rawness that was followed by eight or nine months where I just didn't function. I, I, was, I had a foot in her, in her grave. I, I was tilted towards death much more than towards life, and it took some time to, to rebuild my strength and to re- reconnect to life, to friends, to anything, anything familiar. But one asks these questions, and I, I would hope that people who, who read it, it, it isn't just a book about death, it's a book about a marriage. I think it's very open about many of the questions of love and relationships. But really it's a book that asks us what is the meaning of, of life and our lives and what does it mean to have the hand of death literally dangling above you and knowing that every day could be your, your last day. And I don't think we could live... I don't think we, 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 we I don't think we could live on the edge of such extremity um for an extended period of time because it, it's so painful, it's so confronting, yet to experience it can also enrich you even though there was nothing redemptive about her death. You raise the notion of memory in the book. Um writing this book is my way of restoring Karen to life. And I'm just wondering about that notion whether it's a restoration or it's a continuation in many ways in terms of the legacy Karen has left in the lives, in your life and in the lives of the children you have and the community for that matter. Mm. Well, well, the book is subtitled A Journey to the End of Love and some people have come up to me and have been critical of that title because they're saying, why, why are you saying that love ends when a person dies? And, and I think that death robs you of one major thing and that is life and that love b- love and relationships and marriages belong on the side of life and as much as I might have imagined myself in bed still married to this person that had had possessed me during this period of, of grief and mourning um, she wasn't there to answer me. It was My book is a soliloquy and it's my... And, and one of my quests is, how do you write the life of a person? Do we have narrative coherence? Do we have order amidst the chaos of our day-to-day life? How, how would we write the story of what we've done today? But does that love continue in the memory of the person 
as well, in your memory. So the love continues? I think that the love continues and is nurtured in the way we remember a person, but a relationship belongs to the world of the living. And so while I might imagine Karen standing in the kitchen without her there answering me, ultimately it's a kind of objectification of of love. It it it, it isn't a true relationship. It's an imagining and one holds on to it with one hand, but also Karen's message to me was after she dies to find life and to lead my children towards life. And that also means, and she gave me permission, to find love. And it was only through the love that we had that I could allow myself or would allow myself to think about that possibility. Mark, we're actually going to have to end the interview now. Thank you very much. Uh, for coming in today and talking about such a sensitive topic. The book is 30 Days, and as Mark has suggested, the subtitle, A Journey to the End of Love. It's a text publishing uh, release, and um, in many ways, uh, something well worth others reading who are going through similar circumstances. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.